0: Welcome to another episode of Escaping Samsara Podcast. I'm here at Chithurst Monastery in the UK with Ajahn Suchitu. Ajahn, thank you so much for being with us. Mm -hmm. One thing that uh, we've been asking uh, a lot of our guests is if you could um, tell us about the first time you had a spiritual experience, the first time you remember perhaps being aware of something.
1: Well, I think it was when I was about 19, I was doing some hatha yoga practices and, uh, one is is doing a headstand. And I'm doing a headstand, and my mind had stopped. I didn't realise it could ever stop. No, imagine it could stop. And it stopped. It stopped thinking. And it was quiet. Oh, oh that's that's something else. It, there's another kind of mind here.
0: Another kind of mind. What do what do you mean by that?
1: Well, I couldn't really give you. Now I can put words around it. In those days I just couldn't. It's just the silence of space and awareness the sensitivity and no thought. No move no pressure, no movement forwards or backwards, no future, no past. No self, just the sort of open space. You know.
0: That would have been a long time ago, right? In, um, what what decade was that? <laughs> <laughs> Probably late 60s. Right, so yoga wasn't very common in the late 60s in the UK. How did you come across it?
1: I think it was just coming in a little bit. I think the Beatles and Irish Yogi and TM was creeping in. and uh, So it's sort of there. And I think I'd, around that time I think I'd been to Amsterdam. And there was, you know, there was a sort of a budding youth movement alternative culture.
0: So your first sort of uh, spiritual experience was doing a headstand, a hatha yoga thing well, when you were that's younger. Well,
1: that's one. I think when I was six or seven, I remember recognising that my parents would die.
0: Ah. Did but, one of them
1: die? No, they hadn't died, but I, I kind of figured out, I worked out, or Grew to understand that they would. And I couldn't. I couldn't imagine this. Now, I just couldn't. I couldn't handle it. How could these beings who were mountain gods in my life disappear? And surely there must be a way you could stop it. So I asked my brother, and he said, "No, no. I said, this is shocking." And then I thought, oh, "Shantideva, dear," I
0: said, "Well, it won't happen for a long while yet. Don't
1: we'll worry about it." Don't think about it. And I thought, don't think about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like life-changing. You... I didn't have the words for it, but it, it struck me as how how could you not think about it? How could you not, uh, you know, get that and how that changed your life? And I thought, well, I don't want to get, I don't want to get married. Do you have to get married? I asked my brother. Do you have to get married. He says, no, you don't have to get married. I said, oh, that's a relief. Really... I don't have, to have children. No, no, you don't have to, they won't have to grieve. You we'll could call that a spiritual experience, that was one of that stuff.
0: Sort of realizing that, <laughs> yeah, the reality of death, it's. You know, that was kind of one of the classic experiences in Buddhism, isn't it? That the Buddha went through. Deva
1: Dutta, heavenly messenger.
0: Right. Recognition of death. So the recognition of death is a heavenly messenger, yeah. Um, so you had these experiences and. How did you end up ordaining in Thailand, where you studied under Ajahn Chah?
1: No, no. I um, say in that period, in the late sixties and seventies, early seventies, I was doing the normal thing, you know, just go to school, da 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 da. da. Then you go to university and so on. And this is going on on one level. On another level, I was thinking, well, something are feeling. Where's all this, go- this is going? I mean. Really? You know, like uh, I can't think of anything I particularly want to be. I'm not aiming to anything in particular. Just doing this because it's what you do. So then, part of me was doing that, while the rest of me was kind of going along doing the university thing. But these were two two different aspects of mine. One was spirit, one was mentality. And at a certain point, well, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going. The next thing that happens is you. I've got to get a degree and then I've got to get another specific degree in I was doing literature, whether you've got to get a degree in teaching or journalism or life and a job. I've already done 20 years of school, or 15 years of school. Uh, I think I've got to stop and just check out where I want to go, what I want to do. So I just finished my degree. I got the end of my degree. Right, just cutting engines. What am I supposed to do in this life? What's it about? So I just checked out. So still this kind of... Eastern spirituality was coming in, you know, and da da da, da and there was a psychedelic movement, so I was into psychedelics, be here now, you know, youth culture, transcendental stuff and all that. And um, so the feeling was, well, you have to go to the East to find your big teacher, find the guru. So I spent some time in Amsterdam doing more yoga. And I thought, okay, this is it. We head off east, A great journey. So then I hitchhiked and generally went overland to the east. And uh, where is it? Got to India. Where is it? Went down. Got to Delhi. Okay. Get out here. Went down to Goa. All to of hippies living on beaches, getting stoned. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well. Okay. And it's not here either <laughs> uh, moving around went down to South India just got sick if I don't get out of here I'm going to die I was really really sick
0: so I thought, okay
1: Thailand There's, I can get a plane to Thailand just got to get out of this country before I die landed in Bangkok oh god what's this I don't want to be here either I just had a little kind of international travelling book, and had about half a page about Thailand. There's something about Chiang Mai mountains, so it sounds better. And so I thought, and then Ayuta, old Buddhist capital, I'll stop off there. So I had read, read books of Taoism and Bhagavad Gita and Krishnamurti and Ram Dass and Tao Te Ching, a bit of Zen, Alan Watts, I kind of, Buddha was a cool guy as far well as I was concerned, that's about it. Really, and then I came to Ayutthaya, I see all these big Buddha statues. And... Interesting. Yeah. Then I hitchhiked up to Chiang Mai, wandered around the town, You see a sign saying meditation class in English, stuck up on a telegraph post. What moon, so this has been like, so, okay, I've gone into that, Do meditation. Yeah, you know, it seems like a good thing to do. Went to the meditation class. The monk was English. He was saying, you know, focus. He gave a little talk and then said, now we we'll do 15 minutes of practice, focusing on your breathing in and out. What I noticed, he was sitting by the window, which had no glass in it, in oil lamp. All these flying ants were coming and crawling all over him. And he wasn't all bothered. I was kind of like, "Wow, what's that. That was one thing. The other thing was when I tried to follow my breath, I couldn't do it at all. My mind just all over the place. I didn't know it was that bad. It's pretty simple. It's not complicated. I couldn't do it. But I could realise in not doing it, I could still watch my mind going crazy. You know, I could watch my mind running around like a mad monkey. So
0: there was a, a vantage point that, that you could see the mind, and perhaps was that the discovery you made?
1: Exactly. I thought, well, if, if I could watch my mind, which is me, watch all the mind. Mm. Uh, wait a minute. I need to get into this. So I asked the monk. I thought pretty quickly, hmm. At the moment I'm just sleeping in the basement in the YMCA in Chiang Mai. I'm not going to do it there. I'm not going to get it together. I need to go somewhere, monastery. So I said to the monk, is it possible to stay in his monasteries? And he said, yeah, sure. So he gave me his address. He lived down about 150 miles south in a place called Nakhon Sawan. So, okay. So I thought, that's it. Then I'll go down there, get this meditation thing, you know, get into that, learn that. Then I'll be kitted out with that. Then I'll get on my way and, you know see what I need to do or where the, where the next vision is, you know. So I went down there, took the eight precepts.
0: So the eight precepts are?
1: No killing, no stealing, refraining from taking life, refraining from taking that which is not given, refraining from any kind of sexual behaviour, wrong speech, refraining from drinking alcohol or taking drugs, no refraining from eating afternoon. Refraining from um, entertainment, beautification, jewellery, adornments, fancy clothes, and refraining from using luxurious couches or lodgings. Mm.
0: So this is the the, the precepts that, you know, anyone who's going to stay or live at a temple will undertake, yeah? Absolutely. yeah?
1: So when I was 25, and I'd obviously, you know, I'd done these things, I'd had girlfriends, I'd drink, drugs, you know. and um, but it wasn't too bad. I just wasn't interested at that time. I'd done it. It wasn't getting me anywhere.
0: You know, um, the, precept, the fifth precept about abstaining from intoxicants. Some Buddhists will allow themselves to take psychedelics occasionally. Some Buddhists say no, that's definitely breaking the fifth precept. So, as someone who has some experience before you were a monk in that area, do you think that if you're practicing the precepts, you just shouldn't you shouldn't take anything, or is there a space for that?
1: Um, I think um, these precepts are personal undertakings, resolutions, personal resolutions. One undertakes the main. The theme behind it is to deal with um, realising the mind can easily get drawn out into unskillful actions, as we've done for lifetimes. In well, this lifetime, what we can know, we have got seduced into various things that felt good, but didn't do us so good, much good. So it's a recognition of the human vulnerability and frailty. <laughs> so it's a sense of, look, we need to, we need to have some discipline and uh, impulsive behavior, compulsive, impulsive behavior, to destroy what you don't like, don't take, don't take creatures' lives uh, seriously, even insects, things like that. So he said, no, no, stop that. Stop that. Wake up. Be more careful. And then, ah, oh, everybody gets away. No, no, be more careful. That's, that's taking so much not been given, you know? That's not appropriate. And then sexual... Well, sexual misconduct means abusing people, which is, you know, a pandemic. You know, just know. And then for spiritual life, you want to get into it deeply in a monastery. Hey, this is the place where we decided we're not into that, you know? If you want to be here, you stop that, because it, it gets excited. So it's good to just draw that energy back in, you know? Now, with regard to intoxication... That's a kind of heavy word, but things that basically induce the mind. So where's the line? Coffee, uh, tea, you know, amphetamines, uh, uh, sleeping pills. You know, they're doing something to the mind, aren't they? Psychedelics, I think actually that's probably, in terms of the precepts, that is bending beyond... What the precept really sets up because you're definitely, you know, I took plenty of psychedelics. I found, them, I found them at that time very useful. And I'm not, I I'm not, wouldn't be morally righteous about it, but uh, I wouldn't do it now. Not because of any moral righteousness, it's not a moral thing, it's a matter of really want to um, just really keep the mind quite naked. You know, see what it is, and it's flat, it's bored, it's just deal with it, deal with it, deal with it with the mind itself. Deal with it, don't doctor it up. You know, maybe a little bit of tea or coffee, that's about it. (laughs) Uh, But if somebody, you know, felt that using a psychedelic under certain conditions was giving them a different perspective on their mind, could... Sympathise with that. I wouldn't. I wouldn't recommend it. Mm.
0: So it seems like you're talking about the intention behind it, use. So if you're using Absolutely. it to escape from something,
1: it's an intention, true. So the main thing is, you could say the main thing is the intention. There's also what we call a convention, which means you know, like if I draw a line, then that line is kind of arguable. But if I don't draw a line, <laughs> you know. Uh, and then say, also say, you know, for my friends, you know, maybe I think, well, a glass of sherry once now and then is OK. And I can, I can do that. My friend comes, he sees me drinking a glass of sherry, he thinks, oh, drinking sherry is fine. Yeah. And maybe a bottle of lager too would be a bad idea. And he doesn't have the restraint. Can I model? Can I model something that says, look, I don't see that it's doing me any good, I'll stop there, you know? I model it. I'm not going crazy, but I model living without it. I think mm. that's important.
0: Seeing as we're talking about the precepts, maybe we can move on to the paramis, sometimes known as the parameters, because you've written a, a really good book on that that I found very helpful. And it's not a teaching that we hear a lot of in Buddhism. It's basically eclipsed by more of the meditation that is usually we hear about. So could you maybe just explain to people who might not know what they are? Just a little bit about them.
1: Paramis are kind of like resolutions. Resolutions that bring up um, strength, have strengthening effects on the mind. Such a resolution towards morality. So I might say, recognizing how we look at the world in general. You know, people suffer because of other people being immoral, cheating, lying, stealing, violating. You know, so therefore. All of us can do that. It's not some weird behaviour. It's very normal. I will develop the restraint to take certain principles very seriously and commit myself to those, and that—that's what I do. So that gives me a focus in my life. Actually, there's ten paramis, although you could, you know, one's create any number really, but they act as orientations to. Enduring qualities in one's life. And in fact, orientations to what in Buddhism we call karma, which means the kind of actions that, that I steadily partake in, participate in. Yeah. Now, in a day, average person da, 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 gets up, takes a wash, takes a shave, has some breakfast, Right, what's for work? Looks at the iPhone, looks at their newspaper. Oh dear, dear, this is, this is politics. This is economics. This is what the football team's doing. Right, get off to work. Traffic. Da, 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 da. So the orientation is very much in this kind of jumbled sense sphere of random inputs up and down, and they're really just kind of weaving along in that. Their basic orientation is get through the day. You know, do your job. Get to the end of the week, get your pay, or whatever it is, keep going. That's the orientation. Now, that's nothing, you can't blame people for that. There's no real transcending depth in it. <laughs> now, if you're an orientation towards every day I'm going to practice patience, every day I'm going to practice truthful speech, not exaggerating, not fudging, not prevaricating, and uh, I'm going to practice kindness, like no you know, sniping, no putting people down, no harsh edges, no sense of rebuffing people, but can I look to a way in which I can actually make my presence with other people more, so they feel more comfortable? <laughs> can I have a quality
0: of kindness?
1: Uh, rather than I'm in a hurry, I've got things to do, you're getting in my way, uh, I don't, I'm not interested in you anyway, who are you? No. No. Those are, those are understandable mental uh, ex- experiences to have. But if you make a resolution that says, well, no, that's the most important thing is can you practice with good kindness, patience and morality, for example, then that acts as your orientation rather than the clock, The job, the circumstances in the newspaper, and so forth. Mm. So it establishes orientations that that build up to have a long-term effect. The more you practice, your mind begins to reset itself in terms of values, virtues. That will be for your long-term welfare, when when a job goes belly up, when the relationship crashes, when you lose your job, you'll still have your (laughs) barrami. And you have know, the results of them, your mind is steady, it's strong, it's resolute, it's good, it's clear, it's, it's free, of, free of regret. That's the point of it.
0: If I just think back to how I was uh, maybe 10, 15 years ago when I was a bit of a lost, angry person, it would be hard to imagine the potential good because it's sort of like, oh, OK, yeah, kind people, nice, good. But like then what are they actually doing in the world, you know? What would what you sort of reply to that kind of thing?
1: Well, like many um, of these qualities, they're all words and theories. When you see someone who's developed it and you feel their presence, you go, oh, yeah, that's different. That's different. How is it different? They're steady. There's a stillness. There's a serenity. They're not reactive. Uh, They have a sense of inner space. They're not compressed, they're not busy, they're not restless, they're not fidgety. And often there's a quality of a kind of a luminosity,
0: a certain warmth of being. Do you think that's something that everyone would be able to pick up on? Or do you think maybe, you know, some people might be so... I don't know, busy, or they might not even notice. Some people
1: might not notice. Mm. Only... I mean, that's kind of why you know monks wear robes because we do we do notice.
0: So people notice. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I didn't notice to show off. <laughs> no, it's a bit it's a bit of a stopper, you know. Yeah, what's it is. that? And then some people go, what's that? I don't know. I don't care. Some people go, what that? And they hmm. Oh. And they look. And some people go, what's that? And they go, And make Mechangelo. And some people would go, what's that, and they draw close. What are you? Oh, really? Oh, you know. So it is, it's like little signs that this is another Devadutta. duta. It's a sign of the of this gone forth. Person. What was that word well, I do not recognise? Dva like death, is a Devadutta, duta, heavenly messenger.
0: Oh, okay. So the
1: sign of the summoner, the gone forth person, is a Devadutta duta also.
0: Right, because in the Buddha story there was five, wasn't there? Four. Four. Okay. Old age,
1: sickness, death, and the holy man.
0: Right, and these are signs that woke up the Buddha to the kind of, oh, okay, there's some things out there beyond my palace. and all There's the another
1: reality, another level of reality other than this thing yeah. everybody's everyone's believing in. And that's part of the job of the, well, the job, but the, what the figure of the monk or nun is about. This is another reality that we're walking in this world.
0: They're like a representative of that kind of... Um, Yeah, I do. I really remember um, maybe ten years ago, and I was um, like a very lost person, as I said, and I was in London running around, and I did see a monk actually, and something kind of sort of propelled me over to just say hello, and I remember his eyes were this kind of other kind of stillness that I'd never seen before, and okay, goodbye, and then I was back to my crazy world, and that was that. But I remember it. You remember it? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I knew a guy who was a heroin addict. And he met this Tibetan Lama somehow coincidentally, and what's that? You know, and you, you get it, you get it almost immediately, nonverbally, you get it. And he kicked his his heroin, and he turned it round, and he started meditating. Just and the triggering point was seeing this one Tibetan monk.
0: Hmm. Parames, maybe if we could just name them as. Generosity. well we have generosity yeah. giving and sharing
1: uh, it's both giving and also sharing giving of material food, giving of hospitality giving of medical support giving of advice, so four kinds of giving, there's morality which average, generally means refraining from killing, stealing sexual misconduct lying or false speech and intoxication, then we have uh, banya, wisdom, discernment Isn't there no renunciation in there Renunciation. Yeah. yeah, The sense being able to let go and simplify your life, to move in the opposite direction of the consumer. Hmm. Consume less. So moving in the opposite direction
0: of the consumer, more in a kind of, I don't need that. Exactly. Right. Which is actually a, a real source of freedom in today's society, where it's much more in the other way, isn't
1: it? It's absolutely pivotal. Basically, unless there's a good degree more renunciation in this world... We're not going to survive.
0: Yeah, because renunciation gets a bad rap. People kind of see as just some kind of, you know, uh, flogging yourself like the old monks used to do a thousand years ago. But, yeah, it is a little bit different. What would it mean to you, the renunciation aspect?
1: Well, as soon as you use an English word, you already you already put it in a, in, a, in a kind of the wrong cultural framework. Nikamma means moving away from sen- sensual indulgence.
0: Moving away from sensual indulgence. Yeah. Hmm
1: so sometimes renunciation sounds kind of like hair shirts but this is really i would say differentiating wants from needs if you really get down to your needs and you really ask yourself and you get it down what do you really really need it's going to get pretty simple if you go into what you want it's going to get pretty complex <laughs> and it'll grow yeah. Get down to what you really need. Well, I could get I could get by without that. I really, yeah, I could get by with that. It's going to get down to a, a very simple handful of needs, and nekama is operating around needs rather than wants. Mm. so, from that place, you feel a sense of it sets you free because there's this pull of the sensual world and the material world, and you're fine without it. No, I'm fine. I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm contented without it. And really, that, that's kind of like considered to be almost like a, a change of tide. Instead of more, more, more. No, no, enough, enough, enough. Because I've got enough spiritual strength in myself to feel adequate and comfortable in myself. It only becomes possible, really possible, when you have some spiritual development.
0: Um, so spiritual development would, would mean a meditation practice, I suppose, you most of the time? You could
1: say meditation practice in any cultivation because you've got a stronger heart, you feel warm, you feel happy with yourself. If you've got morality, you've got less regrets, less difficult energies to deal with. Uh, you feel more straight and true. You've got good friends. You're, you you know, There's nothing left to fudge. So your heart feels quite strong and steady. And therefore, I don't really need that. I don't really need that, I can get by with it. Actually, this is too much hassle, I'd sooner be with myself as well.
0: So it's, it's sort of like a slightly advanced uh, practice that someone might think about practicing if they were already, you know, doing a, a good sort of yoga meditation practice, they're already, you know, thinking about morality, practicing morality, then looking at renunciation might be a good might be an appropriate time to try that then.
1: Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. So that's because yeah. you, you know, if you, you do develop chitta, heart, mind, spirit, then it's the case that you just think, no, this this other stuff is just like it's like you've got a cake already. You don't want five loads of icing on top of it. It's just okay. too too much. Why like bother? It's just like you know, larding up something that's already pretty full already.
0: Mm. I mean, for You're some. Some Buddhist lay people, it sort of can be a little bit tricky where if you have uh, friends that you love and want to hang out with, but they you might then need to go into a situation where there's more sensual indulgence than perhaps you would prefer, and it's sort of a different, difficult balancing act then because then it's like, well, on the one hand, I, I want to you know have friendship and conviviality, on the other hand, I'm not super comfortable with you know whatever the level of consumption is, whether it's, I don't know, going to, like, a very loud, um, you know, club or something. Um, So that that can sometimes be a difficult balancing act. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I think it can. Same thing with with going, sometimes other monasteries are too too loud and busy for me. You know, they've got too much stuff going on or it's too, I find it a bit too lavish for my tastes, but Bear, bear with it. <laughs> okay, so <this laughs> and uh, you know sometimes monks you, you know visiting your family, and they want to watch telly, they want to do this, the other just it just it's it just it just, it just feels untidy really. You have all this clutter. You want to live more simply. So you can't generally compromise. Try to get along with it a bit. And uh, explain. Things. Yeah, fine, but I want some quiet time now or something.
0: <laughs> so, there's. So that's what four have we done now? Generosity, morality, renunciation. That's three, and then wisdom, wisdom,
1: discernment, discernment, patience.
0: Oh, yeah. So, so wisdom and discernment, the different ones. No, they're the same. Same, and then patience.
1: Patience. Yeah. Patient endurance. Patient forbearance letting go of the time letting go of the time barrier time boundary Um, very important energy Virya knowing your resources and being able to both cultivate energy and use it carefully because it's a limited resource Um, truthfulness kindness equanimity equanimity almost inconceivable and the equanimity, equanimity is inconceivable? Yeah.
0: I'm surprised, because people experience equanimity, don't they, when they meditate? Is it, maybe you have a... Um, you? I don't know. I, I, feel, <laughs> I feel like I shouldn't say yes, because you just said you didn't. <laughs> I said it's
1: difficult to conceive of.
0: Or... Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I see the very word itself,
1: people think it means indifference, Right. It doesn't mean that. It means you're not emotionally shaken by what arises, serenity of, of being. I think what,
0: what comes to mind is the um, stages of insight in Mahasi Vipassana. Because I know your tradition is slightly different, so I don't know if you practice that way. But there is a, a part of the stages of insight where people are supposed to become equanimous but I I know that's a short-lasting state. Would you say people passing through that stage on a meditation retreat, would you say they're experiencing equanimity for a short while at least? Probably. Hmm.
1: But um, we're looking at something that's much more broad range, which is certain. I think it's a certain fruition because uh, where the heart feels itself almost not shaken by sight sounds touches feelings thoughts impressions memories you can hear them you can see them but it's not getting shaken up and down
0: yeah a special quality indeed the um, uh,
1: example the Buddha said well when you're fit to teach a group he says this is what when a person's fit to teach a group when you like he says for himself, when I teach the monks and the monks don't pay attention, don't follow what I'm saying, I'm not pleased but I'm equanimous. When I teach the monks and they listen and they follow what I'm saying, I'm pleased but I'm equanimous. Mm. <laughs> so, uh huh, it means, yeah, that's right, and yet something in me just is not.
0: Still. He's not ego invested in their reaction or development? Not,
1: or? not into results of any kind. It doesn't pick up results. Wow. It's just, I'm beyond, beyond that. I'm mm. beyond results. I'm beyond cause and effect. You know, and that kind of equanimity, that is profound. This is not just feeling like you're in a cool space. This is This is very profound. Mm.
0: So is that kind of the the top of the, the, the paramis, you sort of something yeah. you get to after a lot of practice of the other ones, perhaps?
1: It's it's put its place as the last one. So you know, generally equanimity is given a very high place. The seven enlightenment factors, it's the top of those the equanimity.
0: So the enlightenment factors in Buddhism are the qualities you need to become enlightened, I suppose? Yeah. And, but you need those qualities in significant amounts, right?
1: Yeah. starts with mindfulness. crystallizes around samadhi, meditation, and it's completed in their community, which is a very much a wisdom development. You know, something you have definitely shifted to another place.
0: About the paramis, some people are talking about the limitations of uh, Buddhist yeah. practice in uh, the world. A lot of people will be meditating, and then if you're, you know, one of, if you're following the five precepts, you'll do that. So basically, you're a meditator, you're a moral person, right? But then um, people kind of go, well, isn't there, isn't there sort of something else? Shouldn't there be more engagement in trying to change some of the structural issues in the world? And it seems one answer to the paramis could be an answer to that. It seems to be something that takes what is a internal sort of something that you do by yourself, meditation perhaps, and then it sort of takes it out into the world. And and how do you see that process happening or working?
1: Well, it essentially crystallizes. It is really, um, you know, developing and strengthening yourself through good karma. Paramis is good karma. And... uh, to the extent to which you know with the development of karma there's good karma and if you practice good karma to the point to which you have enough wisdom to to let go of any even getting results then in a way this fundamental self-quality is 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 removed and it's just pure action so this in a way takes the meditative experience or the meditative heart into an engaged dimension whereby you're sustaining those meditative qualities in the midst of engaged, engaged world. And within the engaged world you hold those principles despite all the rebuffs and the confusions and the whatever. You know? So it's a very strengthening kind of uh, practice. And this is supposed to be, in the Buddhist kind of legend, then the Buddha himself is supposed to have practiced these huge paramis for over 530 lifetimes in order to develop the kind of spiritual heft that would enable him to have the qualities that make him into a Buddha, which is a little more than just being enlightened. Mm. A Buddha has the capacity to be enlightened with nobody else's support, nobody else's teaching, and also the capacity to to transmit that to others. So this is a bit more than just enlightenment. It's it's sambodi, is is for Buddha means you have enlightenment plus immense parami, the ability to meet people on all levels and engage with them and steer their minds because through through your your power and strength, and that strength comes from parami. Mm. So is it. Sort of a, perhaps a, a training.
0: It's like a character training. Then is it?
1: You could say roughly, though character isn't quite it. I'd say it's a spiritual training, and you get people who to like you know. It's pretty. It's it's quite traditionally Buddhist cultures. The Buddhism that comes to the West is a very um, uh, developed, but really developed from one one layer, which is often the Vipassana. Extract, which is like 10% of the Buddha, of the Buddha's presentation. Take that out and open it out, and you've got yeah, a very nice set of teachings, but that's only like 10%. Yeah, It's a very important 10%, but sometimes we don't have the foundational work at the bottom of it, and also the
0: realization work at the top of it. Okay, so the foundational work would be the ethics Parabini. and the parami. Exactly. But what's that on the top of it, you said? Some of it is uh, a <laughs> transformation, S- and
1: uh, so we're not just it's real transformation, and uh, transformation that is world-changing. Hmm.
0: So, world-changing that, I mean, could you describe what that might look like in a, in a human life? Maybe you a bit specific on that, do um, Well, something that begins
1: to change a culture. To some extent, monasteries have that effect. Monks have that effect to some degree. They definitely create a ripple in the culture. But if you multiply that a hundred times, you know, that's a transformational effect. A uh, transformation effect might be that the ruler of, the, uh, ruler of that nation you know, pays respects to the Buddha, takes on Buddhist values and begins to live those values so the whole nation is, is affected in that way. Um, transformation effect in that this teaching is not localized to a particular nation or culture, but other nations and cultures can also pick it up and translate it into their own local terms and still get, you know, powerful effects, powerful transformative effects. So it's not it's not even Buddhism.
0: it's beyond that about this ripple effect I mean it's something that intuitively you would sort of go yeah well that makes sense Um, but you know what happened in Myanmar you know staunch for this country and they had a genocide and there was a lot of people who had some pretty deep meditative training were involved either in denying that or whatever so that's something that that I think has like rocked a lot of people who sort of believed that meditation was something that really could take people beyond that sort of behaviour. Mm. What do you think about that?
1: Well, I don't know too much about it. I know I know what I hear, and naturally um, I'm not so I'm sure that what I hear has a certain some
0: of the truth in it. Well, I worked on the UN report for it, so I saw yeah. a lot of evidence oh. for that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Now, I don't know what was going on in those people's minds, so I, I can accept the evidence that's being presented. What was going on in people's minds, I don't know at all. But I do know, well, I'm, I'm conscious of the fact, well, I call it a fact, that um, what we have now, over time, almost inevitably, is you have Buddhism. The Buddha didn't teach Buddhism, he taught Dharma.
0: Yeah. So the Buddha didn't teach Buddhism, he taught Dhamma, Yeah, Dharma,
1: which means truth and purity. That's kind of true, and yet people definitely want uh, images, icons, standards, lifestyles, a culture. And culture is a, is a very helpful means whereby some of these really transcendent, difficult to verbalise teachings get, can get embedded at a fairly folk level, where people can, oh yeah, Buddhism means temple, means stupa, means pagoda, means monks, means chanting this, that and the other. This is, this is the shtick, you know, and we want that. And if that gets threatened, we get upset, you yeah. um, know. And so that, come, that comes in and then nationhood comes in. You know, we're a Buddhist nation and we have got all these um, Buddhist nations around us. We're going to get, get swapped. We've got to stand our ground and clearly what happened has happened in well, you name it British colonial power all those Buddhist countries were either taken over by the British or the French the Thais were the only ones who kept their own thing and still they could look around and recognise hey you know uh, uh, and so if you're, a, if you're in Sri Lanka then your Buddhism got supplanted by Christianity your children to go to to Vishnu schools um, education, English, and this kind of thing. So Buddhism got kind of sidelined. So there was a and same thing in Burma. Um, I know I don't know all the details, but that's the general story. So then Buddhism became a kind of rallying cry for our nation. We are Buddhist. So then you get a certain tension, a certain energy going into Buddhism, which is not what the Buddha taught. You can understand it. You can sympathise with it from a personal, local, cultural thing, you know, as we see in Britain. You know, we're British. Nobody knows what it is. But we don't have foreigners here. (laughs) Even though we're all foreigners. (laughs) You know, it's this kind of funny thing that occurs when people get very nervous about their boundaries. You get something like Islam. Again, you know, I don't... But in history, Islam has devastated... You know, it swept Buddhism out amount of India. It's slaughtered. It. People, thousands of people. And so people very anxious about maybe getting overwhelmed. You know, these are very powerful Islamic countries, lots of money. You know, the, the mosque comes into the village. They've got four wives and 16 children. And we're going to lose ourselves in this thing. So I think these are the kind of things, phobias that come in. And I'm not justifying it. But then the reaction is not, a dhamma reaction. The reaction is a national cultural populist reaction.
0: Clothed in Buddhist colours. I think it's just that like I would of I would hope, you know, maybe even expect that if if there's a lot of people who've practiced a lot of, you know, Vipassana and what whatever else that they would have been able to see through it, but maybe that's just my own expectations and judgments. I think so.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think um, I don't know to the degree to which people had practiced meditation, but the problem also can be with meditation is it gets, gets very compartmentalized. Well, that's just like you go to church on a Sunday, do your chip prayers, and you go out and do the rest of it. Same thing, you go to the temple on the apostle day, do the holy duties, and then you come back and do what you're doing. Uh, you go to a meditation retreat, get nice and calm, get into this... And if it's too specialised, you think, I've got the, the sixth jnana on that level, therefore I'm this, I'm fine. And that gets compartmentalised. It's not integrated into a kind of daily life scenario. It gets too specialised. And it gets too, too clad in jargon to translate into this means, you know, daily life. You know... And so you're not really looking. In, you're only looking into the mind in a very specific scenario when you're sitting still in your cushion, looking into your mind. When you're moving around shopping, you're not looking into your mind because <laughs> that's not meditation, right? Well, that's the problem. That's why I really, I, you know personally, I'm very cautious by using the word meditation in know, teaching. How come? Because people compartmentalise.
0: I think it's something you do on the cushion.
1: And nothing else.
0: So what is it, how is it beyond the cushion?
1: Call it cultivation. You cultivate, you cultivate parami, you cultivate peacefulness, you cultivate virtues, you cultivate constant awareness of what's going up in your mind. And you cultivate. And what, what wholesome qualities, you seek wholesome qualities.
0: So one way I've been trying to develop the parami is I have um I have a habit app on my phone and I put in uh, so I'm working on generosity right now so I put in generosity and then every time I do something generous I like press a like a kind of tick and I get a tick on my phone you know and um you know what it's it's a very banal thing but it's the best I've come up with because what it has helped me is it's helped me recognize when I'm being generous and when I'm not being generous. And that recognition, I think, is, is probably a good place to start. Um, do you have any other, I don't know, tips or, or ideas on how people might be able to sort of start looking at these kind of character or karma sort of improvements in their cultivation?
1: That's a good idea. I mean, I think what you're doing sounds like a very good idea. But also to notice it in other people, like she, did, she didn't have to do that, she did that.
0: He did oh, that and he didn't have that.
1: to do that. That was, a very, that was a very loving act. Even though he didn't come in read, and read in smiles, he did come in and offer me a cup of tea. He didn't have to. I didn't ask him to. He obviously looked around and thought, how can I help? And thought he might be, no, that's, that's a, notice that, remember it. When you, so, when you go home tonight, spend 10 minutes just scrolling through the decent things that you've seen other people do, either to you or to other people. Mm. And you're probably going to hit generosity, kindness, truthfulness, um, resolution, you know, amongst others, patience, things like that. People who are prepared to walk the extra mile for you. You're going to start touching into those. Now, these. Ten para m,e it's just notional. As I say, you could have 12, you could have 50. But 10's a good enough number to hold in your hand. And then you, you look at both your own actions and other people's actions. End of the day, spend some time recollecting, you know, uh, what struck me today that, was, that I feel was beautiful in my behaviour and other people's behaviour. So you seek wholesome states, and you make an effort to generate wholesome states. That's, your, that's that's cultivation. You seek to wholesome states of mind. You make an effort to bring wholesome states of mind into being. That already is a constant inclination. Yeah. So all the time you're cultivating. you see what I mean? So, you know, you think, well, I could, nothing much to do here. Well, it looks like... I place could do, it, let's say that water bottle out, of it, tidy up a bit. Just because I could just kind of blitz off into my own little trip, or I could look around, what good could I make out of being here? What beautiful thing could I do out of being here? I could offer that. I could do this. And so you're, you're seeking those, and you're not waiting to be told. You're looking out for how that can happen.
0: Someone like yourself, well, what I find admirable and i'm interested in is that you you know you in a lot more than a lot of people and you probably can get into some pretty nice blissful states if you wanted to but uh you choose not to you know and i don't know do you ever kind of think to yourself like ah oh, you know don't mind sort of you know getting into a nice bliss state for a, an hour or two or three or and i don't know do you do you sort of, like, miss that or feel a draw to that sometimes?
1: I don't. My mind doesn't proliferate around what could be or should be or what I want. It, it's intent upon present moment realities, and it has faith in them. It has confidence in this very moment is something I can learn and develop. This moment. Hmm.
0: Yeah. That's a very uh, nice answer. how can I say? Um.
1: <laughs> and we'll see how it goes. You know, yeah. because things will change. This very situation here will will unfold, dissolve into something else, and then I'll be probably sitting somewhere. Okay. We Until something else comes. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I think it is. Uh, you know. A good idea to keep checking you know it's because we are we do tend to get habituated and one can get habituated to be inactive right, so then we'll check it out what's happening I switch things off if I unplug, if I unplug and unplug what happens can you be still again can you be peaceful most of us have got things that should be finished I need to get on with that can you resist that and say stop now
0: well, if, you know, if I was to try that, the answer would be yes, but I can feel a painful niggling that's right. okay. in that direction.
1: Exactly. So that's the, that's the bit you practice with, the painful niggling.
0: You, when you say practice with, you mean be mindful of it?
1: You're aware of it. You look into what's the cause of this. It's the attachment to this idea you have of getting something done. Right? Now, something is creating that. It has to be done. It doesn't have to be done. If you drop dead tomorrow, or even within five minutes, it would get done by somebody else or not get done. It's not an ultimate truth. It's a relative condition that you put yourself into. Do you have control over that? Do you have some say over that? You should have some say over that. You should be able to say, yes, that's important. Yes, I'm interested. Also, I can say, Now let's stop. You can say five minutes. And, that, and the important thing is, these niggles in the heart are the stirrings of what we call craving
0: and attachment. So it seems to be Similar to the idea of the floods, which is something that you talk about in your Parami book, there are four floods. You sort of defined it as things that tend to like carry you away, either mm-hmm. out of the present moment or into habitual behaviour, which may or may not be wholesome. Um, could you say a little bit about how they work in, in daily life? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, they're like... Uh... They're like root tendencies. So, for example, if I if I uh, carve a trough in the land, and the rain falls, it's going to run down that trough and create a river, right? So, but the trough sits there; it's not being a river, but it's a it's a root tendency. So these root tendencies are like particular proclivities that have been established in the mind. One is the proclivity towards the sense realm. We really believe that we belong to this world of sight and sound and touch. So fundamentally do we believe that, to even question it, people think we're crazy.
0: Yeah, because then you would sort of go into all kinds of ideas of heaven, other realms, spirit realms, hell realms, whatever and start to think, well, I'm, I'm a child of the light or something.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Is that how you understand it?
1: No, because that itself is a sense realm. That's the realm of thought. Thought is a sense. There are six senses. So the tendency to run out into concepts, sights, sounds, it's such a fundamental tendency, that I say, that people, by and large, can't conceive of anything other than that. But when you recognise, well, that sight that you saw, you know, it's passed and you're still here, isn't it? Yes. And that sound that you heard is gone and you're still here. And the touch changes. Yeah. And the thought, you're not always who you think you are. When you wake up in the morning, first thought in the morning, you're not a fully formed person. <laughs> not
0: right? before coffee for a lot not of people. Not before coffee.
1: <laughs> so who's that? And yet we do form into these shapes based upon sense impact. And sense impact is transitory. Flash, flash, flash. But the memory of it persists. So we keep remembering ourselves into being this shape that we see with our eyes. Which I can't see most of the time. I can't see myself. But I carry around this basic impression that I'm a fellow with a head and so forth. And then the becoming. Which means we believe in time that I am this and I will be in the future. And in the future I will be this. And ideally that should go up, but it might possibly go down. What we recognise is it does do both. It does go up, we get excited, and it goes down and we get depressed. It goes up, we get excited and happy, then it goes down and we get depressed. It's a it's a it's a seesaw. This is called the flood of becoming. And we very much suppose, imagine, intuitively, instinctively assume this is me, this is my life. And yet, right now, we've been doing this all our lives. We've been becoming something. Where are you? (laughs) Hmm. Where are you now? If there's no future, like you're here now, the future is a possibility, that might happen, but you can't exactly define it. The past is a memory, which is pretty subjective and, t- and tinted.
0: Mm. And so, well, we've all had experiences of time being elastic. You know, some things take. Sometimes time appears to slow down; it takes forever. Or suddenly, you'll get to the end of an afternoon. And go, well, that that seemed to take five minutes. Is that that kind of thing as well? Absolutely,
1: it? it's it's very illusory. It's very illusory. Time itself is really just a, a measurement of what's happening in your nervous system. If it's a, if it's intense experience, right, that the time frame changes.
0: Slows down usually. If it's
1: if it's like nothing much is happening, it seems really long and yeah. tedious. Like but, a meditation retreat. <laughs> yeah. You know, an hour of nothing. If it's extremely pleasant. It's a very short time. Mm. <laughs> uh, so degree to which we're excited speeds time up. So time is really a felt experience of time. It's just a measurement of what's happening in your own nervous system. Of course, we have clock time, but that's, nobody operates according to clock time.
0: Yeah, you've got the circadian rhythms, uh, the digestion. Yes, it's a <laughs> complete
1: abstraction. You know, if you say 8 o'clock, you probably can imagine what that signifies. But that's just a number. And we run according to these things. Because it's it's a work structure essentially to get people to work on. Though that's construction. But the movement of going on, which is pretty under felt as this is the norm, but what is it that goes on? The nervous system?
0: I guess that's changing as well, right? Everything is
1: changing, but does it go on (sighs) anyway?
0: That's a tough question. (laughs)
1: Like, you know, who you were yesterday has... There are bits that have passed away altogether, I imagine. Uh, Things that have arisen. It's, it's, It's not a consistent... Solid entity that travels through time.
0: The thing that often seems the most solid to me even though I know it's not is this kind of orientation, the body orientation. So if I'm meditating a lot of things can drop away but one of the most stubborn things is a kind of like your body has an idea that like okay my hand is here in this position and my head is this position and I'm this way up and I'm orientated in space in this way and these are all sensations but I often mistake them for the eye you know I often kind of the thing that I'm assuming is is a I'm no permanent thing it, it seems to be associated at least or bound up with my sense of space and and time and where my body is in space and time you know, it's it was unexpected, because I thought it might be a bit more, I don't know, complicated than that. But actually, maybe all I am is just a sense of, I don't know, being thing in space. It, it just seems to be that's what happens in my mind sometimes.
1: It happens in your mind. Mm. The mind creates a map, maps continually creates maps. Creates maps based upon visual experience, based upon historical circumstances, based upon somatic impressions. There's a somatic map. Yeah. Now, we might very well see and think, well, my head is up here my feet are down there. Right?
0: hmm What gives you that idea? Sensations, isn't it? If I have my eyes closed, there are sensations that I would sort of go, well, these are the sensations... Of my head, and you, use the sensations. You, exactly,
1: you translate it as that. The sensations don't say that.
0: Mm.
1: Sensations just throb and pulse. They don't say I'm north or south or east or west, up and down. They just throb and pulse. Your mind interprets them as that's that location. Your mind creates the locations, not your thinking mind, but your instinctive mind, your body mind.
0: It's it's, it's a it's a creation. <laughs> It seems very deep in there, very instinctive, as you said. It is. Yeah.
1: It is. You know, you can lose
0: a limb and still imagine it's there. Mm. So it could be interpreted as a permanent self, but it isn't. That's the message, right?
1: It's a foundation for that, that the self gets built upon. But even then, it's changing. You know, if you, have, if you get sick, it goes strange. If you get uh, chit leg, it goes strange. Um, the body map can be quite, quite radically disoriented, confused. If you're frightened, it changes to if you're happy. A frightened person is generally quite a tight, narrow body impression. You know, shaking and cold. happy, joyful person feels quite expansive. Yeah? Uh, that's really just a recognition that at the fundamental level of energetic mapping, the body
0: and the mind are not separate. So just sort of coming back to the parami, how does the parami help?
1: Well, because you with the parami, you, you determine a form for your mind. This is going to be a virtue form.
0: So the form is um, generosity or the truthfulness, something like that.
1: Yeah, and you, you sustain it, you hold it. Now, if you really contemplate the form of your mind... When it's stevious, it's sort of slippery and sliding. When it's fudgy, when it's hard and narrow and pointy like an arrow. When it's soft and yielding and spacious, you can feel those are different forms, different shapes of mind, aren't they? And often those forms, those formations, sankara of mind, are generated by circumstance, external circumstance or personal disposition like oh i like her i feel soft and cut and, and fluffy i don't like him i'm turning into a brick wall <laughs> right? You know. but this is part of me so no i'm staying this shape whether it's him her this that rain sun or shine i'm staying in this shape
0: <laughs> and the shape is uh, giving generosity. It could be like generous,
1: yeah. it could be a sense of the heart feels broad and strong, uh, it could be patient, my heart feels very rooted to the ground, not moving, not shaking, it could be um, loving, my find is really wide and open and expansive, and, and with a sense of inclining out and generosity. They're subtle shapes, but the idea is you, you recognize those and you sustain those, and therefore you don't pick up these random shapes that the world creates for you. If you don't create your own form, the world will create it for you. If you don't create your own life, the world will create it for you, for sure. Mm. <laughs> and it won't necessarily be to your advantage. That's also for sure. <laughs> it's gonna be a life of dodging and weaving and rushing and pressure and you know that kind of thing. Yeah? Mm. But these para me, you're taking hold of that that potential, and you're saying, "No, I'm going to hold this shape, even as I cycle to work, even as I talk to people, even as if I get snapped at by people, even if the pressure goes on, I'm sustaining this form, of patience and goodwill and virtue and truthfulness through that. The result is that I'm now I'm serene because this stuff no longer impacts me and
0: shoves me around. Yeah. Do you think with the meditation, it's almost like a little bit of a chicken in the neck thing where some people might think that oh, it's better to meditate, get some strength and resolve and be able to recognise your mind states and then then you could sort of practice the or But then, you know, some people say, Well, better to have like a good foundation so you're not running around and getting drunk and whatever and and then practice the meditation. For me personally, I started the meditation before anything else. But I know Perhaps in some traditions they might want you to practice perhaps some ethics first. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you think it matters?
1: Ah, oh, it's what 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 your mind takes to. Most people in the West they take to the idea of getting some calm and some insight, so they go for that uh, because they're starting when they're twenty-five. People in the East are starting when they're six. They start to learn generosity, you know. Um, because they see their mothers giving food out to the monks. I mean, that's what they do. And even when they're nine months old, the mothers are putting a spoon in their hand and <laughs> teaching the kid to do it. <laughs> and so certainly in traditional Asian training, your primary thing would be you know, That is when you're seven years old, you go and help the monks do some service. You know, cultivate patience because you're a restless young kid. Cultivate patience. And non-lying, and non-fighting, and non-squabbling with other kids. Go to the monastery; they'll teach you that. And uh, then, you know, if you really get steady in that, then we'll. If that comes up, then we'll start to hone that into meditation. Still, there might be a little bit of meditation, like fifteen minutes or so, uh, recollecting, and then. So you generally mix the two together. Mm. You look at Rahula, the Buddha's own son. He'd been a, something like a, I mean something like a bhikkhu for nine years before they even taught him Anapanasati.
0: That's another form of meditation. Yeah, yeah. mindfulness
1: of breathing. Yeah. When he was a novice, the Buddha told him to, you know, uh, to not lie and to not, you know, taught him morality. In the exhortation to Rahula, the Buddha teaches him about basically morality. And then the next one is a is a greater exhortation. By right. Vinama Sariputta to the Buddha's son. Rahula was like, twenty years old. You know, he'd been kicking around nine, ten years mm. before he got into meditation.
0: Yeah, how old was he when he was taught meditation?
1: Oh, must have been twenty.
0: Right. Maybe I can just ask you the last question. How do you see the spiritual world today from your vantage point? Yeah. You know? how do you see it developing in humanity and everything? (laughs) I (laughs) think you you were about to (laughs) love (laughs) it. I wish I did.
1: (laughs) I wish I did. uh, Well, how do I see it? I think uh, spirituality is a natural process for human beings. It's quite natural for human beings. The expression of it depends upon all kinds of circumstances. So the, the expression of it can be because of traditional teachings that we give given that, that awaken the heart. and think, oh yeah, that's true. Right, yeah, I want to do that. Examples, oh yeah, I want to be that. There. there could be things like old age sickness and death. You suddenly think, hey, I've got to get serious. Seen beyond this so, so those are pretty constant messages which can still cause awakening in the West in the global world
0: I think we're at a point
1: also where there's a big growing realisation of planetary crisis you know not just a tiff with your neighbours but like hey you know this whole show could go really bad I think wherever there's that there's also the possibility of a spiritual awakening because it's, a, it's, a, it's an example of the David the planet is now in sickness and death mm. and we'll go down with it if we don't look after ourselves so the expression of it might be more yes, we'll meditate yes, but there's something a little bit not exactly Buddhist, it's not exactly Christian, not exactly, all those are fine I can be with that not too concerned about the details of the culture, I'm concerned about the message of, of uh, renunciation, <laughs> living simple, I'm concerned about the message of compassion, helping each other, tolerance, tolerating other people, even expressing morality towards creatures, not just my family, but to insects and bugs and things. And I think those are very potent directions. And in fact, at a certain point, too much traditional teaching always gets in the way. As we can see, unfortunately, you know, know, I I think Buddhism has got some wonderful teachings, but at the same time, as you've seen in Myanmar, things can go wrong through to attachment to to the external form of Buddhism. So uh, uh, I'm aware of that. So I don't think we have you know, spirituality is going to be, everybody's going to be a Buddhist. I don't think that's suitable or necessary or or, or advisable. I I, I think, you know, there's going to be Dharma.
0: Sort of universal Um, truth.
1: Universal truth of of compassion, clarity, virtue. uh, And that maybe finds topical expression in in our relationship to, Planning other creatures into each other in this particular time, yeah. mm. and hopefully, you know some of these Buddhist teachings can help to nourish that.
0: Well, uh, Ajahn Sachisi, thank you so much for for being with us and sharing okay. with your your experiences and your wisdom.
1: You're welcome.